Thank you. Again, it's a joy to be here and share with you from God's Word. I'd like you to turn to Malachi 2, please. Malachi chapter 2. I'm going to read the first nine verses, and yet in the will of the Lord, hopefully we may get to cover the entire chapter. We'll see how that goes, but at least we'll begin by reading the first nine verses. And so it says this, And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear... And if you will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I'll curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, And one shall take you away with it. And you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace. And I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth. And iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as you have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. And again, God will bless that reading to his precious word this evening. Remember we said that this is the burden of the word of the Lord by Malachi. And it's a, it's a, a heavy message, a weighty message as he speaks to these, in a sense, a remnant that had returned uh, a century before. They had returned, you know, out of the vast majority of Jews that were happy to stay in Babylon. Uh, this was a revived remnant that came, but now, a hundred years down the pike, and they're, they're, they've lost the fear of God, they're going through the motions, and Malachi has to speak to them. And we said that kind of the title of this series is uh, when, the, when, when the people of God lose the fear of God. What, what does that look like? And uh, we saw that uh, it looks like in chapter 1 that anything for God will do. Kind of the leftovers, the, the damaged animals, anything will do for him. Wouldn't even think of doing that with your governor, but you do it with him. So, so it's this sense of losing a sense of the greatness of God, and and, and uh, we saw that very clearly in the previous chapter. In this chapter, he is going to really kind of zone in on the priests, because in one sense, the the spiritual leadership of the nation sets the temperature for the rest. And, and there's a principle there, isn't there? That in a sense, uh, in a local assembly, no assembly will ever rise above the caliber of the leaders of that assembly. They are in samples to the flock. 
And that word in sample in the King James means literally a pattern to follow, right? So, so if the pattern's bad, then all those that are following the pattern are going to be bad, right? So, so that's why we need to pray first of all for those that are uh, recognized as the elders in our assembly, because it's a solemn responsibility to to set the tone and set the pattern for the assembly. And so we need to be praying for these men, but we also need to recognize that to whom much is given. Much will be required. And even though we all are conscious of the fact we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, there's a day coming when the chief shepherd shall appear. And the shepherds will give an account to the chief shepherd. And so really, we've got to, there's, there's a lot of practical application to this. He's, he's dealing with the Levites. And he's very specific. And now, all ye priests, he says, verse 1, this commandment is for you. Uh, verse 4, again, uh, he says, And you uh, shall know I have sent this commandment unto you. And so he's very directly addressing the priests. And and he's going to talk about their past and how they they had a glorious past, but then he's going to compare it with their present condition. And we're going to see uh, that there's been incredible decline. And notice how he says in verse 2, uh, if you will not hear, if you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name. But I thought today as I was studying this, I, I could just get stuck on this verse. Because in one sense, um, the issue of having ears to he- hear is so critical, isn't it? Uh, he, he says, uh, if you will not hear... Uh, I know it's, are you really listening? And then secondly, are you laying it to heart? Because the problem is we're good at listening in a sense. And over the course of life of an assembly, we hear a lot of messages. But how many do we actually lay to heart? In other words, allow that message to literally go through us and really change us. And so he's saying to them, uh, if, if you do this, uh, if, if you refuse to hear, if you don't lay this to heart, and then to give glory to my name. And, and the implication is this, that if they don't listen and don't respond, then they will not bring glory to him. And, and that's what it's all about, isn't it? First uh, Corinthians 10.31 Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for what? To the glory of God. In other words, we said yesterday, the reason we exist is to bring pleasure to the heart of God. And another way of saying that is another reason why we exist is we're, we're made to bring glory to Him, to make Him look good. Right? And so, believers that don't listen and don't take His word to heart, don't make Him look good. Because what they are, ultimately, are hypocrites, right? And that, that, isn't that the biggest objection to the gospel in our world today? You Christians are a bunch of hypocrites, right? Because we talk high often and live low, because we hear messages, but we don't take it to heart. We don't allow it to really change us. And I'm speaking to my own heart as much as anybody's, right? It's a, do we allow the Word of God to search our hearts and to change us? And so he, he's concerned about this. Uh, and, and he says, and this is very solemn, 
to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I leave and send a curse upon you. Now, I've got to put this in its rightful context. Uh, this chapter is all about covenant. Okay, The covenant God made with the Levites. Or the Levites. And, and so it's a, it's a repeated phrase, is this idea of covenant. For instance, not, just let's look through quickly. Uh, verse 4, you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 5, my covenant was with him of life and peace. Verse 8, but you are departed out of the way, you have caused many to stumble at the law, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi. Uh, verse 10, have we not all one father, hath not one God created us? Why do you deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? And then verse 14, yet you say, wherefore, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. So you, you get the idea. By the way, just as a, an aside, Bible study methods 101, okay? most helpful thing I've ever learned in studying the Bible is look for the repeated words and phrases that the Holy Spirit emphasizes. And, you know, I didn't learn that in Bible school. I did Bible study methods in Bible school, but I didn't, I wish I had done it. It would have saved me a lot of time. It opens up passage after passage after passage if you can identify the words the Spirit of God is repeating. And so, so covenant is, is the whole picture here. And if you remember the covenant that God made with Israel as a nation, uh, when they came into the land, remember there were, there were two mountains and, and, and they, they basically on one mountain, all the, the blessings that would accrue to Israel if they obeyed the covenant. Remember that? And, and you'll be blessed in your land and in your crops and in your vineyards and all this kind of stuff. And then on the other mountain, they were to give all the curses for breaking the covenant, right, that they'd made with God. And, and you'll, you'll be carried away captive into many lands and you, you, your fruit won't yield its increase and all the rest of it. And so that's kind of a background of this chapter is that the, basically God had made a covenant with Israel. The Levites, who he'd made even more a special covenant with, were, they were meant to keep the people on track at keeping God's covenant. And because they had failed, instead of blessings they were going to receive a curse. Now, we've got to be careful because we can learn a lot from these Old Testament passages, but thank God we're not under the Old Covenant, right? We're under the New Covenant, which goes something like this, your sins and your iniquities, I will remember them no more. Aren't you glad, by the way? I'm so glad I'm not an Israelite, really. I mean, I'm, I'm very thankful. Uh, of course, unless I was a redeemed Israelite, that would be okay. Wouldn't it to be born again uh, Jew? That would be okay. But I'm, I'm glad to be an Englishman. That's okay. A, mo a mongrel Englishman, but I'm glad to be one nevertheless. But you get the idea that uh, covenant is, is overshadowing this whole chapter and their breaking of covenants. And even uh, the treachery of breaking the covenants, covenants with God. These are solemn things. And then covenant of marriage, the treachery 
of breaking that covenant witnessed by God. And, and it's a very, very solemn chapter about this idea of covenant and covenant breaking. And so he says, there's going to be consequences upon you. I will curse your blessings, he says, verse 2. Yea, I have cursed them already because you do not lay it to heart. Because they weren't responding and they were unrepentant. And remember in this book, they're not only unrepentant, they're belligerent. They're actually arguing back with God and with his prophet that he sent to them. And they're just fighting back all the time. There's no repentance, no brokenness. And as a result of that, the curse uh, is headed in their direction. And uh, he says, because you do not lay it to heart, verse 3, behold, I'll corrupt your seed. And uh, of course, you can only imagine um, what these Levites and their uh, pathetic example did to their offspring. Because the ones who are quickest to spot a phony are the children of the priests, right? They, they can see what's going on. And so the curse is going to be even to your offspring. And there is this generational thing that you find in the Word of God, that, that generations are affected by choices that are made. That's why it's such a solemn thing to, to respond to God, because if we don't and we harden our heart, it doesn't just affect us, but it actually can impact our uh, subsequent generations. I will corrupt your seed. And then he says this. Now just think about this. This is the ultimate horror for a priest. When they offered the animals, of course, animals poop. I mean, they do those kind of things, right? So they're, they're, they're bringing it to the altar, and it, it, if it has to go, it has to go. So what they would do is they would collect that, and they would have to take it and burn that outside the camp, right? That's what they would do. And God says, I'm going to take that, and I'm going to wipe it on your faces. Of the priests! Now, that's a pretty serious business, right? And, and therefore, you have to be taken away outside the camp as defiled. And, and so it just shows how solemn this, this is. I will spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. Just like they took the dung outside the camp, you are going to be outside the camp because of your conduct. And so we're going to see what exactly were they doing. And, and of course, we know from chapter 1, they're offering lame animals on the, on the altar, blind and, and lame and all the rest of it. Uh, but he says, verse 4, And you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. And so, basically, God is telling them, I, I take these covenant relationships that you have entered into, very serious, right? God is, what does the Bible call him? He's a covenant-keeping God. But he doesn't like it when those that enter into the covenant with him do not hold up their end of the bargain. And so there are consequences to that. And that's that's what we're seeing uh, in this chapter to them. And so what was really the root of all this? Verse 5, My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him, for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. And we, we mentioned this yesterday, but 
But back in the day when the golden calf was made, when Moses was up the mountain, and when they came down, remember there were people are naked and they're playing and all the rest of it, and Moses comes down and he asks the question, who is on the Lord's side? And the tribe of Levi stood with God, took their swords, and executed judgment on the people on God's behalf. And God's now looking back and remembering the good old days when they were loyal to him. And he's remembering it very positively. Uh, and, 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 and he said, as a result of the fear wherewith he feared me, and notice, and was afraid before my name. Remember what we said last night, sometimes when it comes to the issue of the fear of God, we in our contemporary culture want to somehow kind of dilute that a little bit. And so we just say it means reverence. But we saw examples in Hebrews uh, where serving God with, with reverence and godly fear. And now we see the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. And so there was a sense of uh, recognizing that God is infinitely holy and that God hates sin. And there was a genuine consciousness of fear amongst the Levites. And there should be, because they were entering into his holy presence. If anybody ought to have the fear of the Lord, the Levites ought. Do you remember what happened uh, to those that went in with strange fire? Do you remember that? They got burnt to a crisp, didn't they? I think if I was a Levite, I'd read Leviticus with great care. Especially when I think about what happened to them. Like if I'm going to go near, is that going to happen to me? I better be careful. Right? So there was that sense of the fear. And God recognized that. And and um, he talks about their past, uh, how the law of truth... Uh, was in his mouth, iniquity was not found in his lips, he walked with me in peace and equity, he did turn away many from iniquity. And I want us just to, to think about the things that are mentioned in this verse 6 concerning their past. He was an example by his words in that the law of truth was in his mouth. And it's wonderful, isn't it, when you uh, you see somebody and it's very evident that they have been meditating on the Word of God and, and they're very quick to bring truth out. It's it's in their mouth, right? They're, they're, they're a person of the book. I remember when back in Bible school, there was a, a one of the teachers, he'd been a missionary uh, to the Yanomami Indians in Brazil. And... Uh, uh, we used to say that that his blood was bibline because you know if you cut him scripture would come out and I remember thinking to myself this I want to be like that man he just knew the word and you'd see him no matter how early you got up he'd be in his office and you'd see him there pouring over the scriptures and I thought what a wonderful example and God looks back to the Levites and he says the law of God was in his mouth. Wow, what a, what a wonderful... And, and again, don't we need godly leaders who are men of the book? 
The Word of God is in their mouth. And you go for counsel and it's the Word of God that comes forth from them. And that's what the Levites were like in those days. He said the word of the Lord was in his mouth. And how wonderful that is. Truth was in his mouth. The law of truth was in his mouth. And then not only did he have this uh, the, the example of his words, but there was the example of his walk. And, and so notice it says that not only was the law of truth in his mouth, iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity. So, so the, 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 the Levite that he's describing, uh, from those days, he walked with God. And, and, uh, iniquity wasn't found in him. He, he took serious holy living. Uh, how desperately today we need a new emphasis on personal holiness. Right, there used to be in days gone by uh, the the Keswick movement. I, I don't know if you ever know anything, but it was it was a, it was victory in Christ, and 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 you can live a, a life of an overcomer. And then it got kind of rejected and very unpopular. And so instead of having a holiness movement, basically in our day we have an unholiness movement, where sin is abounding amongst the saints. Right, and it's good to have holiness as a goal of your life. Like men like Robert Murray McShane, Lord, make me as holy as it's possible for a saved sinner to be. What a prayer, right? Uh, we need people who are men of the book and who are committed to personal holiness. And the Levites were like that. They walked with him. There was that uh, holiness of their character. Iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity. And then, thirdly, his witness. He turned many away from iniquity. Turned many away from iniquity. He confronted those that were going astray. Uh, was an example of true living. And turned people away from iniquity. Led people into righteous paths. That's what they did. And so God is looking back and he's, he's thinking of their past. And, and then he tells us that a priest, um, verse 7, lips should keep knowledge. They, they should be a fountain of truth in a sense. From passing truth on from one generation to another. Uh, that, that should be what characterizes them. And often when we think of the priests, uh, we think of them uh, as just individuals that were involved with sacrifices, and yet we forget that they were not only to be involved in sacrifices, but they were also involved in scriptures. And I want you just to show you this. Look back at Leviticus 10 for a second, just to see this responsibility of the priests. Not just uh, offering sacrifices, that was part of their responsibility, but... Leviticus 10, verse 8. The Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, uh, Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou or thy sons with thee, when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die, shall be a statute uh, forever through your generations, and you, that you may put a difference between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean, that ye may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord hath spoken to them by the hand of Moses. 
And then look again at Deuteronomy, just to see that the responsibility of the priest was more than sacrifice. It was teaching the law of Moses to their generation. That was their responsibility. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 9 through 11. And thou shalt come in unto the priests, the Levites, and unto the judge that shall be in those days and inquire, and they shall show thee the sentence of judgment. And thou shalt do according to the sentence which they of that place which the Lord shall choose shall show thee. And thou shalt observe to do according to all that they inform thee according to the sentence of the law which they shall teach thee. And according to the judgment which they shall tell thee, thou shalt do, thou shalt not decline from the sentence which they shall show thee to the right hand nor to the left. And so you get the idea that the priest, there's a twofold ministry of the priest. There was that of offering sacrifices and there was that of teaching the scriptures. Okay, it's clearly there, right? There, There's that instructive aspect of their ministry that often is overlooked. And, and so he says, the priest's lips should keep knowledge, verse 7. They should seek the law at his mouth. People wanted to uh, get uh, an answer on some question about the law. The priest was who they should be able to resort to to get clear answers. They were to be people that, that knew the word of God, that it was in their mouth. And... Uh, he says, the priest should keep knowledge, uh, they should seek the Lord's mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. This is the only time in scripture where the priests are called the messenger of the Lord of hosts, but nevertheless, they're called that. And remember we said, uh, our, our prophet is the messenger, right? His name, uh, Malachi, means messenger, okay? But now we find that actually the priests should have been the messengers. And the reason that prophets were needed was because priests failed. Okay, That's why the prophetic office was raised up for the land and for the nation is because the, the priests failed to, to instruct the people of God like they should have done. They were the ones who were the depository of truth. And they should have passed it on from... But they failed miserably, so God had to raise up all the messengers, the prophets, to step in where they had failed. And so that's what we find, uh, this idea of the messengers. And so they, they failed quite miserably uh, in, in that way. And we, we said uh, elders meant to be an example to the flock, and they're also meant to be... Uh, guardians of the truth, uh, protectors of the truth. Uh, I, I think of that whole discipleship concept in Second uh, Timothy two two. The things that you've learned among many witnesses, commit to faithful men. And it's interesting how, when you look at it, it says the things you've learned to many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men. Right. In other words, no evolution. Right? Of course, we have to make it relevant for our generation. But truth itself is unchanging, right? What you've heard among many, the same commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, right? And so there's a sense of the, the importance of carefully passing the truth on from generation 
to generation. And, and how important it is to do that and to know the truth and communicate the truth. And I, I do believe that elders, one of their primary responsibilities, as well as being an ensample to the flock, right, the role model, they're also meant to feed the flock of God, right, uh, which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers of. So they're responsible for the diet, and, and the diet is in their hands, and so somehow this responsibility of communicating truth from one generation to another, that's a, that's a huge responsibility. And, and, and it's a case of, are we faithfully communicating truth generationally from one generation to another? Uh, because that is the responsibility. And certainly uh, because of the failure here uh, in Malachi's day, uh, it, it's, what we're, why God is going back to the beginning days he is really revealing how far they have fallen. Sometimes it's very challenging to go back and read about the saints of a former generation. It's very challenging. It's very humbling. And you recognize how far maybe we have fallen. I remember listening to Lloyd-Jones was a very famous preacher in London. And in a day when church attendance wasn't a big thing in England, he was packing out Westminster Chapel every Friday night, taught through the Book of Romans, took him 10 years. And it, the place was packed every Friday night, students, young people. And, and uh, he, he said that uh, if there was ever any danger of him getting a swelled head, he said he would go home and he would read Whitfield's journals, George Whitfield. And he said after he'd read just even one day in the life of George Whitfield, he felt like he'd done nothing. Right? In other words, it helped put perspective on things. And, and so it helped him stay humble. And, and sometimes it's good to look back at former generations and the zeal that they had, and it maybe gives us a good idea of where we are. <laughs> and it, maybe it's not a comfortable thing either to see where we are in comparison. And so he takes them back to the days when the Levites were what they ought to have been. But then he says in verse 8, but... That, that awful word, in, in, sometimes it's a good word, because it's always a contrast word. This is the way it used to be, but, okay? Now, that can work out well. Paul's very good at turning it round from bad to good. But here the Lord is turning it from good to bad. And he's saying, this is what you used to be like. This is what the Levites were once. But he says, but you're departed out of the way you have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. And, and uh, isn't it a solemn thing to cause somebody else to stumble? The Lord Jesus said that if we cause a little one to stumble, it'd be better if a millstone was wrapped around our neck and we were thrown into the harbor, right? I mean, that's pretty solemn, isn't it? And we've got to ask ourselves, you see, People are watching. Young people are watching. People are watching us. Is my life, is my speech, is my conduct, is it going to cause someone to stumble? Or is it going to cause somebody to want to follow the Lord with their whole heart? 
And, and the Levites, their conduct was such that they now had caused not just a few, but many to stumble at the law. And remember the Lord's accusation again against the priests and the Levites of his generation, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these different ones. And, and he says, you have made the word of God of non-effect by your tradition. And, and his greatest uh, confrontation was against the religious leadership because how they had caused people to stumble uh, at the law. And this is what was going on with the Levites. This is what you have done, he says. You are departed out of the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, said the Lord of hosts. In other words, you've broken this privileged covenant that I made with you. Therefore, he says, I have made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as you have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. And the idea was this, that they'd lost respect and credibility amongst the people. They were dis- they, people hated them. They despised them because of who they were. It's interesting, uh, growing up in, in uh, a Catholic background, and um, I remember as a child, you would be petrified of the priest. If the priest was walking down the street, you'd go on the other side because they had a lot of authority and respect and weight but then all the scandals hit and all of a sudden they lost all credibility and what would happen is people instead of getting on the other side of the street would spit on the ground in front of the priest because they had lost all credibility and that's a warning right what happens and especially uh it's a challenge, you know, because the enemy recognizes that if he can get the leaders to stumble, the fallout is massive. So that's why we need to pray, because they, I think, have a bigger bullseye on their back than other people, because if they can fall, the fallout's huge. And, and people lose respect. And scandals certainly uh, have caused that to happen. And so he says, you guys, uh, you're, you're not uh, people, con- uh, uh, you're contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways, because you've been partial in the law. And so now he's going to move on and talk about another betrayal of trust. He's, he's talked about the priests, but now he's kind of going a little bit wider. He's speaking about the people themselves. And... Um, and again, uh, a breaking of trust, treacherous dealings. And he says, have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? Uh, and, and so this idea of uh, disregarding brotherly love had led to some very, very serious social sins amongst the people. And so the people have done treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers. So he's going to explain what he means. But but the, the simple idea behind this section is that there's really huge consequences when pe- people do social sins that we're going to describe in a moment. And God 
terms it, and he's going to use this term treachery. I want to just see how many times he uses it in the last section. Uh, verse 10, he, he says, Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? Verse 11, Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Uh, verse 14, uh, Because the Lord has been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. And then verse 15 uh, he says at the end, therefore, take heed to your spirit, let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. And then verse 16, therefore, take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. Now, treacherously or treachery, it's an act of betrayal, really. It's betraying a trust. Okay, uh, it's a very serious thing. It, it, we would say treason, treachery, uh, no matter, however you want to describe it, whatever way, word you use, it's not a good thing. It's really serious. And God is accusing them of dealing treacherously. And it's all to do, basically, with relationships with women. And so he begins by talking about the people as a whole. Uh, he, he says... They, they've done treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah, verse 11, hath dealt treacherously and abomin- abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved and hath married the daughter of a strange God. So, just like the book of Nehemiah, and there's a lot of connections between Nehemiah and what's going on here in Malachi. Remember one of the things that Nehemiah found when he came back? That they had married foreign gods. And, you know, one of my passions in life is history. Uh, and I, I really enjoy, I know that sounds strange. Some people think that's a weird thing. But I love history. And I love World War II history. I love uh, all kinds of history. But one of the things that we learn from history is, that we don't learn from history. Right? We don't pay attention. Somehow we think we can do it better than the former generation, so we don't listen to the warnings of the past. And that's the tragedy. And so they were marrying strange women. Now, in order to do it, we're going to see later on, they were divorcing the wife of their youth to marry a strange woman. And I'll guarantee they didn't marry an older woman. I'll I'll guarantee. They always trade them in for a new model, right? Isn't that what goes on? Right? Betraying a trust here. Now, can you not learn anything from Solomon? I mean, like, what's the lesson of the wisest man that walked the earth? Don't marry... Women that go after strange gods, right? I mean, isn't that a big picture on the, on the face of scripture? And yet, here they are doing it again, right? Because they're not learning from history. And that somehow we feel like we can do what others have got caught doing, but we somehow will get away with it. Just, it's a, it's a deception, isn't it? It's a crazy deception. Uh, you hear people falling into sin and you think, well, uh, you know, I, I can do it, but I will never get caught. As if you're going to be the glorious exception. Doesn't work that way. But we're not learning. We're not learning the lesson of history. 
And so here they are marrying the daughter of a strange God when they were told not to. And the New Testament's clear too, right? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And yet still people insist in marrying somebody who's not saved, convinced that they will be the exception to the golden rule. Right? I'm sure you elders have run across that, right? But I know it's God's will. No, it isn't. God's will is clear. Do not be unequally That You can't get around this. Very clear, isn't it? Black and white. But we think somehow we can maybe just be the one exception. Or point to some exception that seemed to work. Uh, that's what they try and do. But So here we are. Uh, they profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved. Uh, they profaning the holiness of God. What a serious uh, accusation against them. Uh, married the daughter of a strange God, the Lord will cut off the man that doeth this. Whoever he is, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. It doesn't matter who it is, uh, God will cut them off. And it was a serious thing to be cut off from the nation, uh, put outside, basically, outside of the grace of God. That's basically where they would end up if they would do this. I'll cut off the man that doeth this. And so it would seem that Jewish wives were being callously divorced so their husbands could make these alliances with families maybe of the land, of their heathen neighbors, maybe feeling that it would gain them an advantage, whatever, and um, they were still coming to the altar and uh, offering their sacrifices, even though they had blatantly done what God had told them that they shouldn't do, they still were coming to the altar with their sacrifices. And God says in verse uh, 13, This have you done, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out. And I wonder, is the implication here that actually the Jewish wives who had been abandoned, their tears were saturated in the altar. The guy was bringing his bullock even though he'd done this deed and, and God, the aroma's never reaching God because the tears of the, the betrayed woman are, are just dousing it and it's not reaching God. And so he, he says, um, the weeping with crying out in so much that he regards not the offering anymore. God doesn't regard the offering anymore or receive it with goodwill at your hand because all he can see is the tears of the, the wife who has been abandoned. So it says, Yet you say, Wherefore, because the Lord has been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. And again, the Bible does talk about how serious it is to make oaths and promises in the presence of God. Now, again, I'm, I'm going to be careful what I say here. I know divorce and, and the whole thing is a hot topic, and I always pray that I don't get asked to speak on it, because whatever you say, somebody's going to disagree with you. But the, the things that we can absolutely agree on. First of all, divorce... God hates it. We can agree on that because it says it very clearly. 
It says it very clearly. We can also say that it's a betrayal of promises that were made in the presence of God and that he witnessed. And you notice it says, uh, again, just this word witness here. Yet ye say, wherefore, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth against the, the, whom thou hast dealt treacherously. You have been guilty of this act of treachery, treachery, and yet I witnessed the vows you made, the promises you... I witnessed it all. And now you've done this. Breaking a covenant. I mean, just think of the difficulties. Even in a New Testament concept, just think of the difficulties. For instance... We're not supposed to bring our dirty laundry before unbelievers. So how do you get a divorce? You've got to go before the courts. Right? That alone ought to make us a little bit nervous about this whole thing, right? God hates it. We know that for clear. There's, there's a, a treachery, a betrayal in this whole thing. You see, it's, it's usually... It's connected with sexual sin, but and often it's portrayed as that, but it's more than sexual sin. It's social sin. We never think of that. The damage to the, to the woman who's been traded in for a younger piece, uh, how do you think that makes them feel psychologically? Do you think that has an effect on them? How do you think that affects the kids? Right? This is, that's why I think God hates divorce. Because of what it does to children. Because children love mom and dad, and that suddenly now they've got to make a choice. And suddenly they're shunted from one to the other, right? It's, it's horrendous. It's a social sin of incredible magnitude. The damage to this country, and I know people, I've got dear friends whose parents divorced. I know them very well. They're going on with the Lord. But I'll tell you, to this very day, they're affected by it, even though it happened when they were young. And they would be the first to tell you that it's affected them to this very day. And so, God is saying, I witnessed this. And this is, this is none other than an act of great betrayal. And he says, she is the companion and the wife of thy covenant. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Entered into a covenant. We said things like, until death us do part. Remember that? Anybody remember the words of what you said that day? And in sickness and in health and all of this stuff. Remember, we said all that. And that's what we did was we entered into a binding covenant agreement in the presence of God. That's very solemn and serious. And did not he make one? Verse 15. The two shall be one flesh. It's going right back to Genesis. Right? Two become one. The companion of your youth. The wife of your covenant. The two became one. Yet is yet yet had he the residue of the spirit. Difficult verse, but it, it seems to imply that the spirit of God is the one that brought you together. Do you believe that? 
I believe that happened in my marriage. No question. Right? He, you remember the story, Genesis 24, where the servant goes and gets a wife? Right? And, and, and what's that whole, who's the servant supposed to be, typologically? Holy Spirit, right? And, and so, God has took two, made them one. The Spirit of God has been the active agent in bringing them together. And wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. And you see, remember, they're getting rid of their wives. They're marrying women who have a strange God. Okay? Well, that's not going to be very... That's going to be a bit confusing, isn't it? So you've got a hubby who's supposed to be following Jehovah, the God of Israel. You've got a wife who's following Baal or Ashtaroth or one of the other ones. And so the kids are growing up and they're getting it from both angles, right? And, and the idea is the two coming together in covenant agreement with God. And it's no guarantee children still have to make their own decisions, but it certainly enhances the possibility of a godly seed when you have parents that honor their promises. Right? It does help tremendously. And, it, and it, 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 there is a sanctifying effect of the stability of a husband and wife that love each other and the children can see it and love the Lord as well. It does enhance the possibility of this godly seed. And that's what God is looking for. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. Let none deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Take heed, be warned, and, and we might say that today because, because in this room, nobody is immune from the temptations of the flesh. Not one person, I don't care who you are, male or female, it works both ways, right? And, and the possibilities there for any of us, and the minute we think it will never happen to us, we're in danger zone. We have to keep coming back to this. In me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. And, and I recognize I am capable of the most heinous sins imaginable in my flesh. But at the same time, there, there needs to be a taking heed to the warnings of the Word of God. Concerning this, take heed to your spirit. Uh, uh, just uh, let this affect uh, you emotionally be affected by the word of God. Let it speak to your heart very, very clearly that you deal not treacherously. He says, for the Lord, the God of Israel saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. I, I just I see this, he says, as a violent act. If we only would listen to what God says. You know that the divorce rate amongst Christians is no different to the divorce rate amongst the unsaved. That should make us think a little bit. Maybe we're not listening. Maybe, you remember how we started? About if you will not listen, right? If you'll not take it to heart. Maybe that's what we need to do. Really listen tonight. I know this is not the most happy, feel-good message you ever heard. But it's so important. Right? I mean, this is so critical. This is, God says, I hate this. 
Therefore, take heed to your spirit, you deal not treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Amazing. You've wearied the Lord with your words. Remember the end of the last chapter? They were wearied with the things of God. Remember that? At the end of chapter 1. Um, verse 13. You also said, Behold, what a weariness it is. And you have snuffed at it, says the Lord of hosts. Brought that which was torn. So the things of God had become a weariness to them. And now God says, Actually, you think you're weary. I am weary at your words because your life is not matching up. You're doing all this stuff and you're still coming and bringing these even though they're lame or whatever. You're still going through the religious motions but you're involved in things that I hate and, and doing treacherous things and it's wearying to me. You're wearying me with your words. Yet you say, wherein have we wearied you? When you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Wow. Isaiah, in chapter 5, makes an amazing statement. Let's just turn there for a second. Isaiah chapter 5. When he's pronouncing woe on the nation... And how relevant it is to the generation which we find ourselves in. Verse 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to them that call evil good, good evil. Doesn't that sound a bit like our culture? So, the real good guy is the pervert who comes out and owns, I'm a pervert. He's the hero in our culture today, right? Because he, he came out. And who's the villain in our culture? Well, it's those narrow-minded, fundamentalist bigots, the Christians, who are so intolerant of everybody, right? Isn't that? Who, who's the bad guy now? We're the bad guys, right? And God says, woe to those that call good evil and evil good. And now, back in Malachi, the people of God were saying, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And do God's people ever say, especially the younger generation, and I've heard it, well, they really can't help it, homosexuality, right? There's a sympathy towards this in evangelical circles among the younger generation. And Paul is brainwashing, they've been to college got debt to be brainwashed and social engineered to, to accept the garbage that we're being taught today. But it's affecting them. And they're, they're now, the so-called professing people of God, are saying that everyone that does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. That's how far they'd fallen in the last days of the Old Testament and I hope you've seen something here. I'm trying to bring a thing across here that the last days of the Old Testament seems to me to parallel a lot the last days of the New Testament. Right? Very same things. And then, everyone that does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he, that's God, delights in them. 
See, God's a God of love and he loves homosexuals. And, he, and of course, he, if they repent, because he died for all men, right? But not in their unrepentant state. He does love all men. No question of wants all men to be saved, but there's no salvation without repentance and faith. And, and so, uh, but they're saying he delights in them just as they are because God made them and he made them that way. That's the mentality today. And then they're also saying, where is the God of judgment? Where is the God? By the way, it's a good thing to say, where is the God of judgment? Because we don't hear much anymore about the God of judgment because we've got this new, cute, cuddly, user-friendly version for our day that's a God of love and never really gets upset about anything, right? And so where is the God of judgment? Well, he's in the Old Testament. Oh, is that true? No, he's in the New Testament too. And it's interesting, this is, this is really paving the way for tomorrow night. Because tomorrow night is going to answer the question that hangs at the end of the chapter tonight. Where is the God of judgment? And the answer is, he's coming. He's coming soon. <laughs> he's coming. And he is going to bring justice on the earth. And he's going to put things right. And he's going to deal with things. But we might ask the question in our own circles, where is the God of judgment? When did you last hear a hellfire brimstone message? I, I had an elder write to me recently. He's got a relative who's got into Buddhism and uh, basically had sent him an article from the New York Times saying that there's no basis in so psychology, sociology, and scripture for hell. And the elder asked me, how would you answer that? Now, please forgive me for thinking this, but I'm thinking, why are you asking me how to answer that? Right? But I wrote back and I said, well, let me just tell you this, that concerning psychologically and sociologically and all these other things, I have no answer. But the minute he said in scripture... I have an answer. And so do you, if you read your Bible, right? There's a big answer in Scripture. Hell is a big part of the teaching of the New Testament. But we might even dare to ask in our circles, where is the God of judgment? Or what about even for believers? What about the judgment seat of Christ? Where is the God of judgment? We're accountable. And we might try and justify ourselves today, but there's a day coming real soon that we're going to look into his eyes. We're going to give an account. I'm going to give an account. Be not many teachers. Don't you think I don't think about that? You shall receive a stricter judgment. It scares the daylights out of me. Right? I give an account for everything that I'm going to say. Before God. This is, this is so serious. And there is a God of judgment. And so, we find a chapter ending with a very sober thought that the people of God are saying, everyone that does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. And where is the God of judgment? How far they have fallen. Why did they fall that far? Because the Levites fell.
right? The failure of the Levites to uphold their covenant affected the people. That's why, I said it at the start, I'll say it again, if you want to take away from this message, you should be on your knees praying for the oversight of this assembly. Right? Because they set the tone. The tone's right, everything else is going to be right. The tone's off, (laughs) everything else is going to be off. These men need your prayers. I know they recognize the solemnity of it. It's a very serious thing. But then we're still responsible too. God is holding the nation responsible too because of their treacherous conduct, right? So we can't blame it on the elders. Well, I didn't have good elders, therefore... I took, a, a, you know, a woman who wouldn't, you know, you can't, you can't, you, it won't fit. We, we've got to be responsible for our own actions too. But we need to just recognize that this departure happened to a people that were the cream of the crop that came out, right? This was the remnant that had a heart for the things of God that came out and a hundred years down the pike this is where they're at. So what it tells is decline can happen very swiftly. And we've got to guard our hearts. What it is today, 10 years from now, well, even, like I, I look back over the last 30 years, and uh, I, I heard, um, what's his name, David Jeremiah on the radio, and his... I don't remember the whole message, but he kept saying, I never thought I'd see the day. And he kept saying, I never thought I'd see the day. I never thought I'd see the day. Have you ever thought that? I never thought I'd see the day, right? The, the decline in the last 30 years has been frightening. And the way it stops is it stops right here. By the grace of God, I'm not going there. I'm putting the brakes on, right? I'm not going in this crescendo away from God. No, no. We gotta, again, as we said right at the beginning, that song, search me, O God. Make sure that I'm the way I ought to be. That I'm like the Levites of old, the Word of God. The walk with God, the witness for God is seen in my life. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the searching ministry of this prophet of old, this messenger that's so consumed with his message that he's lost in the message itself. Lord, we pray we might be those that will listen and will take it to heart and will have the great desire that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we will do it all to the glory of God. And indeed, we'll be swift to give you all the glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.